This is the uh, third podcast from the Active Learning and Political Science team. Uh, I've uh, invited, or actually no, I didn't invite them, they invited themselves, uh, uh, Amanda, Chad and Victor here to the UK. So we're in my office where they're marvelling at the amazing frescoes uh, and uh, exciting ceiling decoration uh, of British University uh, offices. Um, We've just finished the uh, workshop that we've been running uh, with the support of the UK's Political, Science, uh, Political Studies Association and the American Political Science Association uh, on new pedagogies in political science, uh, which I think, looking around for hopeful smiles, yes, yes, thank you Chad, uh, which uh, seems to go very well. Uh, we were looking at a whole range of different uh, pedagogies. so. Simulations, uh, in part, but also uh, problem-based learning, competency-based learning, using case studies, social media, uh, a whole range of things. And uh, yeah, the the feedback that we've got informally has been very positive. Uh, Chad, what have you taken from this? What's what's been the the thing that struck you most? Uh, what struck me most was the wildly different environment in which many European academics operate in terms of um, the kinds of assessments they're able to use in their modules. Um, they're kind of, uh, I, I would say they, they have a much broader sort of uh, skill set, a range of topics that they might be teaching, many of which are not common <coughs> in the US political science curriculum. But perhaps, for example, so uh, for example, the uh, approach to, for example, security studies, your teaching of, of communication. Um, I don't remember ever seeing an undergraduate course in political communication in schools in the U.S. that I'm familiar with. Um, so that's to me, that's a major deficit on the part yeah, it's, of American it's, it's academic kind academia. of a paradox we've talked about in the past couple of days, which is on the one hand, we have a lot more constraints here in the, the UK system than we, you have in the US, but at the same time, we seem to have a lot more freedom. I, when you were saying, Amanda, that your learning objectives were prescribed for your intro to IR course, no one has ever prescribed to me what should be in any of my courses or even more than broadly what my courses might cover. So... Uh, yeah, it, 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 it's it's odd. The, 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 there is academic freedom, but possibly operating at different levels in what there is. Uh, Victor. So I agree with Chad that it, there's clearly a different environment uh, in Europe. Uh, I was very impressed by the people who came to participate. Uh, just really a great group of people. Um, I got a lot of insights. Um, I think what was very interesting to me was that despite the fact that uh, these are people who are operating uh, in very different uh, contexts uh, that uh, the exercises that we went through uh, were still highly applicable uh, and really could be translated, not necessarily for the same purpose, but translated um, for their uses uh, in, in the way they teach. Okay. Amanda, what, what for you, I mean, you've probably got more experience because of the work you're doing, dealing with uh, international collaborations, and the same kind of things for you? Uh, so definitely. Uh, so I work a lot with international um, uh, and internationally based colleagues, but they're working in the American model of education, and that's where most of my, 
experience is. So even when I come overseas to teach, it's to students in an American model of education. So getting to learn about the constraints that many um, instructors, uh, lecturers face in other systems. And one of the main examples is the number of assessments. So the American system, we're able to have pretty much as many assessments as we want. We have a lot of control over that. And in a, in a British model, you know, one or two assessments often at the end of the course are um, often you're very limited to that. And so that, that really hamstrings some of the ideas that are coming out of the U.S. literature on um, various active uh, approaches in terms of what you're able to do. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, for me, personally, I had two points. One uh, was to try to can we document whether the suspected suspicion of active learning really exists? Um, and I, uh, I did a quick search, this came up in one of our sessions, and I did a quick search for studies. And um, it, it seems like there's sort of this general assumption that if you use simulations and games, you're gonna face a lot of um, suspicion or hostility from your colleagues. And I'm really curious about whether, uh, to what extent that is true today, that people are still suspicious of these methods. And the other thing I found really useful is I'm on Twitter now. Um, we got to play uh, Simon's great uh, Twitter game, um, which, uh, have you blogged about it? I haven't blogged about it. You should no. blog about I it. Well, I've mentioned it in blogs, but I haven't yeah. actually blogged specifically so about it. So Simon's going to blog about it, because okay. uh, it's a great, great game. Um, it's really annoying. Um, <laughs> Simon, do you want to explain your game for our listeners? Yeah, well, the game is, is very simple. I, I give everybody a slip of paper with two tasks. The first task is that they have to find everyone else in the room. Uh, so you're only allowed to communicate through Twitter. Uh, so uh, as everyone discovered, uh, that's tricky when you've got some people who've never used Twitter before. Uh, it turns out halfway through that exercise that one person isn't, isn't even on Twitter uh, at that time, uh, which has never happened. Um, that's academics for you. Uh, and then the second exercise, I've given each person a different location which is expressed in varying degrees of uh, annoyingness. Uh, mm. So you may or may not know where you are. So Victor for a long time didn't know uh, where his uh, grid reference actually related to because uh, either you, you had entered something wrong or it just was not coming back with useful results. So, uh, and then they have to arrange a, a meeting spot as, that's convenient to everybody's uh, situation uh, and constraints. And I put some uh, lovely constraints in as we go along. Uh, as soon as possible. So again, it's, uh, it's used primarily as a game for teaching about communication and actually came out of me first encountering Twitter as uh, something that I thought was completely ridiculous mm. as, a, as a medium uh, that it's producing without necessarily consuming and it's very hard to construct conversations. And so this seemed like a good way to demonstrate limitations around communication, how that's uh, problematic for negotiating agreements uh, so students really love it and certainly during the game and after the game I had, I had a couple of students tweet me saying oh you're doing the game I love that game uh, and these are students from several years ago so uh, I, I know a couple of them who only got onto Twitter like you Amanda because they had to do that for the game and then have stayed on and clearly have uh, thrived and, and you know really come to appreciate the value that it does have. Right, and what I thought was great, uh, just personally for this game, is not only uh, did I get on Twitter, um, which I've resisted doing for quite a while, but it really was a crash course in how to use Twitter. And it was very frustrating, but I came out of it from the half hour that we played this game, 
I really think that half hour was well spent in the sense of learning this technology that I've been resistant to using. And then today I started tweeting more. So you've managed to finally get me on Twitter. Good. Um, it's my gift I'm to sorry, the world. I'm, I'm sorry to the world. <laughs> um, what, for being on Twitter or for not getting on Twitter soon enough? Uh, the, the former, but no, sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this idea about constraints because we talked uh, about this in the, the wrap-up that we had uh, today and just you know how much constraints are constraining and how much they can be empowering and you know I thought it was interesting you know the conversation that we uh, were having you involved in uh, Chad you know talking about how you can get round the limitations that are imposed on you it, how how I, how constrained do you feel you are in what you want to do in a classroom generally in so in the classroom I have full control it's my domain in a sense I I don't, I don't have, uh, let's say, a department head or some other superior parachuting into my classroom and doing some kind of formal uh, observation. Um, formal know. observation is going to happen, though. I think we should demand that it's by parachute. True. Right. I, yes. Um, uh, w so I'm. I can. I can experiment with various games, other active learning exercises, as much as I want, and it's my decision entirely as to whether to continue to use something, to abandon something, so on and so forth. Um, where I am constrained is the overall shape and direction of the curriculum. Uh, I work at a very small institution, only about 2,000 undergraduate students where the curriculum for the political science major, for example, um, is in some sense competing against the curriculum for other majors because it's a limited pool of students that we're all drawing from. And then that, all those specific academic programs are in competition with what we would consider a general education set of requirements. Um, so the curriculum itself tends to produce in students the, the image or, or the mental perception that the curriculum is simply a series of requirements and they have a list of boxes they have to check off in order to graduate. Learning is not in the picture for them. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just how do I get through this system, navigate the requirements and pop out at the other end with a degree. So that means I'm constrained in terms of the numbers of students I, I can get into my classrooms, um, what kind of subjects I can teach because some might be required for certain aspects of, of the university, uh, others are not and those are much more difficult to fill. And what, uh, what, is, what are students likely, likely to take given all the other demands on their, their time and budget? I think that's you know that's an interesting difference. You know that we're not in a competitive market where students can choose to take courses in other departments. That when students enrol with us, they're enrolling for a politics degree, and a politics degree they will get unless they formally re-register on a, a different program. So uh, you know once we've got them into the system, we've got them by and large, and so that does add a, a different kind of dynamic in, in what we do. Um, it kind of raises the question you in that, which was something that came out of uh, your session, Amanda, about competency-based learning about you know what is what makes a political scientist. 
And I think, you know, we, we sort of all seem to be saying that the kinds of efforts to produce a list of competencies seemed... Oh, there's a pause. Uh, <laughs> applicable to everybody. Applicable to everybody. Right. And is there anything about a political science degree or about making somebody a political scientist that is specific to political science? Well, we would certainly hope so, right? Otherwise, yeah, I know we hope right? so, but what, what is it then? <laughs> if, I could, if I could answer that problem, I'm sure that I would have a lot of grant money coming my way because there have been a number of efforts to try to come up with a list of competencies that are specific to political science. And what happens is essentially... Uh, people argue over what levels of knowledge in different areas are necessary. So in, do you need to have broad levels of knowledge in all four subfields, uh, or sometimes more subfields, but in international relations, comparative politics, um, country-specific politics, so American politics, British politics, etc., and political theory, what does that knowledge look like? That's really difficult to measure. So I think there's been a lot of struggle with that because the movement behind competency-based education is establishing highly um, measurable competency that you can really assess. And so that, that's difficult. We also tend to focus a lot on skills, so critical analysis and written and oral communication, um, potentially teamwork and other things that are specific to what everyone should be able to do. And so that's where I think the challenge comes in is this movement towards really defining what, it, what skills are uh, and what you're able to do is, is a challenge to those of us that tend to think of it more from a content base. Where I think is really valuable out of competency-based education, though, is trying to think about authentic assignments to give to our students, where we're not having them do things that they wouldn't be expected to do when they're, being, uh, when they're actually working in that field. So thinking about assignments from that perspective, of giving them tasks that are authentic to the real world, where they can really see the potential use of those, is where I think uh, we should be moving towards. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I, I'm, as I've written on the blog, I think the trigger should be pulled on the traditional research paper. Um, that's not uh, something students are, are going to see typically in the workplace. They will see the task of, well, give me a recommendation and don't go over two pages. It might require a lot of research, a lot of thought, uh, but in the end, what they're delivering to their superior or their colleague is something very precise and, you know, it's, it's, it's either there or it's not. Yeah. There's, there's no fluff allowed. Yeah. That would be nice. Yeah, I, I disagree. Um, so I think there's real value in teaching students how to do research and how to test hypotheses, and you can do that in five pages doesn't have to be a 15-page thing, and I've had students give me a lot of positive feedback on research papers where they learn how to do abstract blitzes, and they learn how to do uh, literature reviews, and they learn how to actually test hypotheses using either really simple quantitative approaches and, or simple qualitative approaches. Um, so I think that they're both useful. Um, I think it's, it's how you frame it and providing them with the right resources to be able to do it and so that it's it's a challenge, but it's a challenge they can overcome with your assistance. I mean, I teach research methods, so I certainly agree that teaching students how to do research and doing assignments that are germane to that and, and research papers, I certainly I have them do that. Uh, and forgive me if I'm, I'm misrepresenting what you're saying, Chad, but I think part of the issue is many classes in a given curriculum, the final project is a research paper. So the question is, how many research papers do students need to do in an academic program are there other assignments we should be having them do that potentially that we're not? 
So I think thinking through assignments that are authentic to what they're expected to do, but also thinking through how they can practice skills and develop skills we think they should have is important. I mean, I certainly want my students to do the things that you're saying, Victor, but I don't know, and I want them to be doing them outside of my methods class as well. I don't want them to just be doing it in methods, but I do think that there are other classes in which they don't need to do a research paper in order to show mastery of the content. And this, this might be one advantage of the European or the British system of, of higher education if there are uh, broadly mandated competencies or areas of content knowledge that all students are expected to possess once they graduate from whatever particular program they're in. I think that Amanda's approach fits into that very well, whereas in the American system, or at least my very skewed version of it, where you have different programs essentially in competition with each other, it's a very atomized environment. So not only do you have multiple programs kind of duplicating the efforts of each other, but you don't really know whether any particular student has mastered any particular area of knowledge because there's no communication between those programs that are in competition with each other. Well, this is what comes out of specifications grading, right? So what does a 70% mean in a course? So does that mean you've mastered 70% of the content? What, what does that mean in terms of your level of mastery or understanding? What if you understand 100% of the content in one area and 40% in another? And I think the movement of specifications grading is interesting in the sense of really trying to tie performance on assignments to achievement of learning outcomes. Uh, and I know I have not necessarily been doing the best job at that, and so I find it really intriguing to think about being really intentional about here are my learning outcomes, here are my uh, assignments and assessments that are authentic uh, and tied to those learning outcomes, and I'm going to grade students based on their achievement of those as opposed to what percent of the content they manage to do or how many points they earn. Big time. Yeah. No, I mean, I agree. I think, uh, and by the way, let's be clear. I, I don't think that all classes need to have research components. I have classes that have a heavy research focus. My political violence class is mostly interactive um, and is based mostly on quizzes and, and short assignments and such, um, whereas my intro world politics has that research component. I think it varies by the class. Um, I think there are too many professors who actually don't teach them how to do... Uh, there are a lot of people... There are a lot of people who are assigning papers they call research papers that are not really research papers. They're, tell me about X, or what do you think of Y? And when I say research paper, I mean really testing hypotheses using um, whatever methodology you want to use to test that hypothesis. Yeah. And I think that's something we're looking at here at Surrey, uh, trying to think about how we can make student, students as researchers that kind of... Uh, uh, approach and thinking about how can we move towards useful outputs, so ones that might have real-world value, and specifically thinking about developing those kind of skills in a, in a very explicit sort of way. Um, it's always, you know, I think one of the things we find when we, we do things like this, there's lots of different ideas, and certainly talking to some of the participants afterwards, uh, you know, they've kind of got sheets of ideas and things they, they've got to, to do. Just to, to kind of wrap this up, how do you capture the the ideas that you have when you do things like this? Because I know I've written on the blog several times, 
usually in the airport lounge as I'm waiting for my flight back to civilization. Uh, you know, I, I've got an idea and I know that I'll forget it when I've got back to the big pile of work, which I can you know, see uh, in the desk behind me. Uh, strategies, ideas, how do you, how do you keep the, the magic alive, people? <laughs> I, I'm a traditionalist. I like paper and pen. And then, so I'll, I'll be scribbling stuff and then I will transcribe it onto my computer. And then I will usually transform it into something else like a syllabus or a blog post or something of that sort. Okay, Victor? I basically don't do the blog posts, but- We know. Uh, thank you, no, I, I, I'm aware of that. I We're honored to have you on the podcast though. Well, thank you, thank you, I appreciate that. I think it's, it's about getting those ideas and moving forward with them. And if they don't work, you go on to something else. I get super obsessed with things. Um, so usually when you see me posting on the blog, it's because I've discovered something I really like, uh, whether it's I heard it in a session. And today, one of the participants uh, brought up a point and I, I immediately started searching about it and that's what's in my head. And so when I hear something that just speaks to me, then I, I get a little bit crazy with it. Um, it. Technically, I keep I use a Mac and I have the Stickies app, which is like little post-it notes that appear on my desktop. And so I have a sticky app called Ideas. And so whenever I get an idea, I immediately put it on my sticky note. And that way it's always there. And every time I'm looking at my computer, I see my sticky note. And so sometimes that idea becomes a research project. Sometimes it becomes something I do in my class. Occasionally it becomes a blog post. Um, but that's usually what I do. But I, I've, we've never done any workshop. And we've done a lot of workshops at this point. And I love doing them. And one of the reasons I love doing them is very selfish. I always get ideas from the participants about uh, things I should try. And, and this one was certainly no exception. Just thinking through the puzzle of how do you do some of the things I want to do when you have limited assessments or the sorts of constraints that um, some of our, our um, European colleagues face, trying to figure out how to solve that puzzle is what I find really exciting about what we do. Welcome to my world. So, <laughs> so Amanda, I'm going to follow up with that. So what would be the key thing you, you took away from or one of the best new ideas you took away from Oh, I'm totally stealing Simon's Twitter game. I love it. I, I think for thinking through communication, for teaching technology and professionalization skills, um, I definitely uh, want to do that. I also discovered, Victor, doing your identity game, uh, that every time I do that, I hadn't realized until this time, but every time the identities I put down are often different or prioritized differently. And that's really made me sort of think through how I think through identity. Um, so th those are two things I thought uh, one of our participants made um, a really great uh, point about, maybe think about how to take assessments and structure them in such a way where you're building informative assessments in anticipation of a summative assessment. So trying to sort of game the system and how to get around having only a couple of uh, assessments for the students. So I'm just sort of filled with ideas. So that raises the really interesting question of when you see something that's really, really neat, and you still can't figure out what the hell to do with it. So f that fits your class. So I want to play the Twitter game with my students. I desperately want to play the Twitter game with my students. I don't teach communications. Uh, and I'm trying to figure out how I can take that and fit it into my class in a way that's going well, to, to be useful besides just being fun. And I have exactly the same thing with the other game that we discovered, which was uh, Giant Jenga, which I, I foolishly took everyone to the pub. Uh, before the workshop, not the day of the workshop, just to be clear, because <laughs> that'd be wrong. Uh, but they had giant Jenga in the the pub garden, and we played that, and we did 
really very competitive playing of it, and we got really very high. Um, you put a picture of the Alps so the at Alps when, blog. When Simon says high, he means the Jenga thing was very tall. He doesn't mean high in the other context. No, yes. of course not. Uh, but again, you, you know, in the in the, the drive back from the pub uh, afterwards, we were talking about how we could uh, get some valuable learning points out of that. We came up with quite a, a good list about cooperative gameplay and about uh, just uh, hypothesis testing and things and like trust. that. And trust. Trust. Uh, nobody trusts anyone anymore, uh, if they ever did. Uh, but again, it's something like that seems uh, very good, and uh, I, I particularly like the way uh, Victor spotting one of the chefs coming out for a quick uh, cigarette break. Uh, you invited her to join us. She said no, but she said we should play shot Jenga, where you write the word shot in some of the bricks, and if you pull it out, you have to have a shot. And that sounds really good, and I'd like to play that at some point. Probably not with you guys. Uh, yeah, no, no. But no, it'd be wrong. Uh, but again, you know. The, uh, that's one of the things I really like is just there's so many things you can do and you can turn them into learning moments. Uh, and yeah, I think that's kind of a challenge of how you do that. Chad? For me, the, the biggest payoff is simply interacting people who are different. So the participants in the w workshop come from di different institutional environments, uh, different nationalities, uh, I think uh, yesterday evening we had five different nationalities sitting at the same table. Everyone bringing in different perspectives and I'm always finding it enlightening to hear about those other perspectives because it's things that I would never think of on my own. Yeah, and I think that's a key part of it. One of the things that uh, we find really useful is the blog. Uh, we've mentioned that several points. If you are interested in reading the blog, you've probably found it already, but if not, it's at activelearningps, or one word, dot com. Uh, we're always really happy for people to come in and do guest posts. We've already had uh, a heavy sell of that to our participants, and one of our participants had already uh, done that. So if you're interested, uh, just get in touch with one of us through the website. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter. Uh, at uh, Alps blog, again one word, and uh, you know we're happy to uh, to hear from you. What have we got coming up? Uh, we've had uh, Hong Kong, we've uh, had Surrey now. Uh, what's uh, on the agenda for us? So this APSR, myself and uh, uh, Nina, uh, who couldn't be here. A APSA. Did I say APSR? Yes. Well, it'd be good <laughs> if it was an APSR, but it's not an APSR. It's an APSA. <laughs> We'll be having a uh, workshop on political violence, um, and one of the uh, one of our uh, guest posters, uh, Casey Delante, will also be there, uh, and I think it'll be a lot of fun. And that's in Philadelphia, September first through fourth, and I assume there are still spots left. I, I think there are still spots left, and we know of the four of us which one remembers all the dates and dots all the eyes and crosses all the T's. <laughs> that's what we need. Um, and uh, we're continuing posting on the blog in the summer. We don't take a hiatus. So um, I'm sure we'll have some posts updating everybody on what we did this weekend and our thoughts um, in non-podcast form. And um, going to continue the series on a beginner's guide to using simulations and games. Exactly. And we keep on talking about doing uh, webinars and things like that. So we might come back at you with some more technological innovation. I would say cutting edge, but it's really not. Uh, so we're, we're behind the curve, but we'll get there in the end. Uh, thank you guys for your thoughts and uh, join us next time for the, uh, the next Alps podcast. Goodbye.
Bye. Bye. See ya.